Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First of all, it's the love and respect guy. His name is Emerson Egrich, who offers some insight into principles of thoughtful communication, including not being too quick to send an email message. Plus, it's the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University, Everett Piper, who has taken aim at the sensitivities that seem to have become more common on college campuses. Then from Alabama's Crimson Tide Sports Network, as well as the Senior Bowl, you'll be hearing from Phil Savage. He's written a new book about the principles he's observed that have contributed to Alabama's recent football success. He also shared with me about his own personal faith and God's path for his life. And on this edition of The Intersection, Becky Harling is married to the head of the missions organization Reach Beyond. She's also an author and speaker who deals with communication in her latest book. Listen to what she has to say about listening. Also, actor L. Scott Caldwell played a key role in the film depicting the respective faith journeys of journalist-turned-Christian apologist Lee Strobel and his wife Leslie, and she will present her take on the compelling nature of the movie. Finally, it's Melissa Henson of the Parents Television Council discussing what she sees as a deficient amount of programming for families being made available by various streaming services in their original programming. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Emerson Egrich is perhaps best known for his book, Love and Respect, offering insight into the marriage relationship. Well, we know that communication is an important part of a marriage, as well as other relationships. He has written a book called Before You Hit Send, Preventing Headache and Heartache. Here now is the founder and president of Love and Respect Ministries, Emerson Egrich. I say text-to-text, voice-to-voice, face-to-face. I mean, those are the basic ways, and, and we're going to be trying to, you know, inform people, persuade people, or say something of an affectional nature. And that's the broad 30,000 view. But the idea is uh, particularly digital, because what prompted it, Harper Collins wanted me to write this, because people are leaving their digital footprint. And you can't push hit backspace or hit delete. Uh, it's out there. And, um, you know, it is something that is uh, quite significant. I mean, you know, there was a gal that applied for Cisco uh, to work at Cisco, and she was complaining on her Facebook to her friends that, you know, it's a 40-minute drive, you know, it's good money, but, oh, you know, I guess I'm just going to have to do this, and on and on. It was just vending, and immediately got some email from a, a, a worker at Cisco and said, you know, we're pretty sophisticated here on the Internet. Tell me who your hiring manager is. I think they'll want to know. And she didn't get the job. Mm. And And I've had business owners say they will check a person's Facebook after the interview to see what they're saying. You know, those of us who are Christ followers, I mean, Jesus said it very clearly, the, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And though people don't, you know, quote the Bible per se, there is this sense that what I say reveals who I am. But to your question about the golden rule, yeah, I mean, this isn't really complicated. As I said, we learned this when we were four. We learned it in kindergarten. Think before you speak. And uh, we've all known Thumper. If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. But, you know, why is it that we don't really practice it to the extent that perhaps we should? Well, not only the anger issues, but and people say, but I don't always know how to do it. Well, the golden rule would say it's not that hard. If roles were reversed, how would I want that person to talk to me? You know, if I was on the other side of the counter in the store, would I want the customer to scream and yell at me and humiliate me in front of other customers standing around there? We all know the answer to that. But what's even more intriguing, Bob, is that 
academia has done great research on this in terms of interpersonal communication. And one of the leading experts said that, you know, basically you should not say anything you knowingly know is not true. And uh, that, you know, you don't lie, in other words. And there were academics reviewing his findings, and they said, well, this applies when someone's speaking to me. I don't want them to lie to me, but I reserve the right to lie to them. And this from intellectuals, Bob. Mm. I mean, there is this mindset (laughs) that you don't lie to me, buddy, but I can lie to you. And so there's this violation of the golden rule. Well, wait a minute. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. And why is it that we do this? Well, because we're mad, usually. We're upset, we're hurt, and we feel they need to know. I'm going to teach them a lesson. But it never works. It undermines our credibility long term. It makes us ineffective as a communicator. And I've been practicing these things since I was 20. There's a checklist of four things I ask myself, like a pilot in a cockpit before you, you know, go into outer space, so to speak. Before I go into cyberspace, I ask myself these four questions to protect me against my proclivity to say something that ultimately will give people the wrong idea and not the right idea. You know, what's very interesting, you, you talk about these four questions you asked yourself, and I wanted to follow up and ask you to share those four questions that you ask yourself. Well, and I learned these when I was um, in college at the Wheaton College Chapel. And there was a speaker who said, uh, and he really said there were three things, that he, he attributed it to Socrates. I've since done research. There's no direct evidence of that. We don't know where they came. But the, the three that I heard that day in chapel were, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And I've added a fourth, is it clear? Because over the years I thought I was doing the first three and People still said, I, I'm not quite clear. I understand what your point is. <laughs> you, know, you know, I remember saying, I know what I mean. I just can't say it. And someone said, if you can't say it, you don't know what you mean. So clarity is pretty important. But these are the four that I seek to ask myself. And I, I will tell you, when I do it, it, it just works so much better. When I don't do it, it doesn't. And uh, someone said they read the book before you had sent and thought I was going to tell them to shut up. Actually, I'm telling them to speak up. And the idea here is if these four align themselves, and we've done research on these four, they're distinct. Uh, They're like four legs on a table. Each is distinct from the other. And when I ask myself those four, and one of them is not there, there's going to be a collapsing. There's going to be a tilt on my communication. And I've got to just remind myself all four need to be present, and if so, hit send. Emerson Egrich here on The Intersection. You can learn more at the website loveandrespect.com. This is the Intersection Podcast with Everett Piper, president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. In a recent conversation, he discussed with me some material relative to his book, Not a Daycare, The Devastating Consequences of Abandoning Truth. Here now is Everett Piper. Well, I would say the timeline is as long as human existence. You can go back to the original sin. What was the original sin? We wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we were told not to. Why? It's because by eating of the fruit of that tree, we could define everything. We could decide what's good. We could decide what's evil. We could define everything. We could define male and female. We could define up and down, bitter and sweet. We claimed to be as God. We didn't need God any longer. And those self-evident truths endowed to us by our creator were not important any longer. If you want to go back to our seminal documents, 
And again, if you track it through, let's go to our seminal documents. What's the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution? The French Revolution was grounded in reason that was unmoored, unmoored from revelation. In other words, human reason, we will know, we will define, we mm-hmm. will decide Robespierre, French Revolution, blood flows in the streets. However, the American Revolution is not grounded in us. It's grounded in self-evident truths endowed to us by somebody bigger than us. Then you fast forward to Dewey. Dewey made everything a mess by worshiping the created rather than the creator. Here we are in the 1960s. We're doing the same thing, doubling down on it. And now we're surprised that we're seeing these terrible consequences in the college green and in our culture as a result of teaching this pablum for generations. It shouldn't be a surprise that it was as predictable as the sunrise. Mm. I mean, you can turn the news on or listen to your show or check out your laptop any given day and see this nonsense, this lunacy. It makes no sense. And it all goes back to what you just said, feelings rather than facts. I feel I should have a better grade, even though the fact may be I didn't study for it. If we have really dumbed down education to nothing but the acquisition of feelings rather than the uh, pursuit of facts, then what in the world is the point? I'm not going to give you a diploma at Oklahoma Wesleyan University in opinions. I'm not going to pat you on the back and say you majored in opinions. I hope you actually learned something while you were here. And I've told my students this. I don't care what your opinion is. I really don't care. And you shouldn't care about mine. Pol Pot and Mao and Robespierre and Chavez and Hitler and Mussolini and all the despots of history had opinions, and it didn't end well. But Jesus told us you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Veritas, Latin for truth, is still on Oxford's shield some 1,000 years after its founding. Why? The context for freedom, the context for freedom is always built upon the foundation of truth. We can have a robust debate. We can have a good argument. We can have liberty, if you will, to engage in that disagreement if the goal of the academy is to find out who's right and who's wrong, which has been the historical purpose of the academy. I I referenced Oxford. Let's go back to Oxford again. Why was it established as a liberal arts institution? Because classical liberalism was the pursuit of liberty and liberation and freedom and justice. Classical liberalism was an education for a free man, a free woman, a free culture, and a free society. Ironically, today, as a conservative, a person who believes in conserving those time-tested truths, (laughs) I'm more classically liberal than my left-of-center counterpart, because I have the freedom to argue, to debate, to engage in uh, an open exchange, because truth will judge it, not power, not privilege, not politics, but truth. So as you lay out in your book, some of these principles, what would you say would be your unique take, your perspective on some of these issues? I guess, and it's sad that it is unique because it's classically (laughs) liberal, if you will. It's classically grounded in liberty and liberation and freedom and justice. My uniqueness in writing this book, and I think why you're calling me and anybody else cares, is very few people are saying, wait a second, Chesterton was right get rid of big laws, you don't have liberty, you get thousands of little laws. Stop teaching big laws, 10 of them, if you will. Jesus said there were two. Stop teaching those, and what you will have is not freedom, but fascism. You won't have more liberty, you'll just have licentiousness. We need to return to the time-tested 
nature of the academy, the time-tested truths that have been endowed to us by our creator, those self-evident truths that are written on every human heart, the big ideas, the first things are important in the academy. And frankly, I'd rather you learn how to acquire more morality than how to earn more money. And your character is more important at the end of the day when you get a diploma than whether or not you've got a career. That is what education is supposed to be for. And if we've forgotten that, we are going to be a culture that is anything but free. Everett Piper here on The Intersection. You can learn more through the website, notadaycare.com. The Intersection continues now with Phil Savage. He serves as executive director of the Senior Bowl, which is played every year in Mobile, Alabama. He's also color analyst for the Crimson Tide Sports Network. In a recent conversation, he discussed matters of faith, family, and football related to his book, Fourth and Goal Every Day, Alabama's Relentless Pursuit of Perfection. Here now from that conversation is Phil Savage. I definitely, in the acknowledgments of the Fourth and Goal book, the last paragraph of those acknowledgments talks about, you know, my faith as a follower of Jesus and just the fact that I'm, I'm so thankful for all the different people that were either put in my path or crossed my path, however you want to term it, uh, that has given me a, a life in football that I could have only dreamed about uh, when I was a child. You know, my dad and I were throwing a football in our front yard in West Mobile when I was about seven years old, and one of our uh, neighbors, who I didn't know at the time, passed by, uh, he got home to his wife and said, hey, I think I just found my quarterback for the Mims Park Redskins. So he came back around a couple of days later and said, hey, you know, would you let, at that time I was as a child I was always known as Philip. will you let Philip come out to play football? So I started playing football when I was really seven years old as a quarterback because Bob Goocher happened to, to go down our street and see my father and I throwing a football out in the yard. And there's been so many circumstances like that, that you absolutely have a belief that, you know, if you truly are a follower of Christ, you believe that he orders the steps that you make in many ways, and that means that other people's steps are ordered. And so Bob Butcher came across my path as a seven-year-old, then a coach by the name of Horace Moore at Swanee, the University of the South. My brother was at UMS. I was at Murphy High School down in Mobile, and Horace always recruited UMS, but not necessarily Murphy. Well, the headmaster at UMS said, Coach Moore, we don't have anybody at UMS this year that would be interested in Swanee, but one of our students has a brother that's down the street at Murphy. You should go there. And honestly, Bob Swanee, only college offer that I had to go play college football and I guess the point of the story is that you don't need a hundred doors to be open. You only need one. And that was the one opportunity that was presented and gave me a chance to walk through that door. And when I got to Swanee, that just seemed to, to just turn my uh, options into an eight lane super highway in the sport. And, you know, people like coach Homer Smith. And then, you know, you mentioned Bill Belichick and Nick Saban and Ozzie Newsom and, you know, all these different people I've worked with over the years, uh, it definitely you definitely feel like, looking back on it over a 30-year career, uh, that, that God had his hand on a lot of the things that happened to, to lead to this point. I'm very hopeful that your listeners will 
will go out and get a copy, and, and they'll really enjoy it uh, because there, there certainly are elements that go beyond football. I have some of my own family background story uh, in there, which is going to be somewhat surprising uh, to people, I think. Uh, my dad was was born in, in Overton, Alabama, just south of Birmingham in a in a in a mill in a in a mine town, and uh, they found their way to Mobile through a set of tragic circumstances. And I delved into that in the book because Bob, all of us face fourth and goal situations daily, on a weekly, on a on a yearly basis. And you know, you just have to rely on your faith uh, to get through that and persevere because you know that there's always going to be better times on the other side of the briar patch, as they say. Mm. Phil Savage here on The Intersection. You can learn more at the Macmillan Publishers website. Follow Phil on Twitter at Senior Bowl Phil. The Senior Bowl website is SeniorBowl.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the Download Center, marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to and download full conversations with recent guests featured here on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, Becky Harling's husband is president of the ministry organization Reach Beyond. In a recent conversation, she discussed some principles with me involved in good communication, including the ability to listen. She's authored a book called How to Listen So People Will Talk, Build Stronger Communication and Deeper Connections. Here now is Becky Harling. It's my conviction, Bob, that we can't talk and tell people about Jesus until we've listened and we really hear their hearts. And I I think as believers in Jesus Christ, God's primary agenda in our life is to transform us into the image of Jesus. And if you study the life of Jesus, he was an amazing listener. He had fabulous people skills, and he drew others out, and he created the space and time to listen to their hearts. And so I uh, came to the conviction through a rather dicey conversation with my daughter that I needed to work on my listening skills. And so that was the birth of this book. (laughs) All right. Let me ask you this, that dicey conversation with your daughter. Talk about the content of that, if you would. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I will. There are those of your listeners that have teenagers, you know, that can be a really fun ride. And I remember the day I asked my older teenage daughter, so Bethany, do you think I'm a good listener? And honestly, Bob, I was expecting rave reviews. I thought <laughs> I have killed it in the listening department as a mom. She's going to tell me how great I am. Well, there was a long pause Uh-oh. in her answer. And you asked for said, it. <laughs> Yeah, that's never good. (laughs) And she said, Mom, sometimes you listen well, but I feel like you interrupt me a lot. You dive in with your own story. You give me a lot of unsolicited advice that I'm not really looking for. And, Mom, I just really want to feel validated and heard by you. 
And wow, after that conversation, I had a lot to think about. Wow. So she said, I want to be validated and heard by you. So yeah. how how did that impact your life? <laughs> <laughs> there are no words. I remember having a conversation with God later that night, like, Lord, am I really that bad? I mean, aren't I supposed to give advice? I'm her mother. Um, but, you know, God, I... I finally bowed before the Lord and said, God, I need you to change me because here's the deal, Bob, that I don't know if your listeners realize being loved and being heard are so closely linked that the two, according to David Augsburg, are almost indistinguishable. And so I wanted my daughter to feel loved. And that meant I needed to change as her mother in order so that she would feel heard by me. Mm. And validation doesn't necessarily mean approval, right? Right. It just means you understand where the other person is coming from. You know, in our society today, uh, Bob, we are so polarized. We have strong opinions about everything from the type of coffee we drink to the political system to whatever. And Validation just simply means that you're going to try to offer understanding to another person who may have a different viewpoint than you, but you're going to enter the conversation, you're going to listen to their heart, and you're going to say something like, your feelings on that particular part make sense to me. I may not agree with you, but your feelings make sense to me. What makes for a person that listens well? I think it's a person who actually validates, like we just talked about. It's a person who honors another person's story. What do I mean by that? It draws out another person's story and lets them be the star of their own show without trying to dive in with your own story. It, it's a person who doesn't try to fix other people's problems and, and certainly a person who asks great questions. But I'd like to go back to that fixing other people's problems if we could, sure. Bob, because I think a lot of us struggle with that, myself included, until God began to change me. What I mean by that is somebody opens up about a problem to you, and in your mind, you know you have the perfect solution for them. And so what do you do? You dive in and you give unsolicited advice, and you try to fix their problem. But they're not really looking for that. They're really looking to just process their problem out loud with you. They don't want you to step in and fix. And I think this plays out in people's marriages a lot. Becky Harling here on The Intersection. You can find out more by visiting the website beckyharling.com and you can learn about the ministry of Reach Beyond by going to reachbeyond.org. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast. And talking with me recently was L. Scott Caldwell. She has been featured in movies, television, and on Broadway. In fact, she's a Tony Award winner. In our conversation, she talked about the role she played in the movie The Case for Christ and the relevance of the message of the film, as well as her character specifically. The Case for Christ depicts the conversion stories of Lee Strobel and his wife Leslie. Here now is L. Scott Caldwell. When I read the uh, script, what I got from the character is that this person, Alfie, just is. She's just a being, okay? There was nothing preachy about her. There was nothing uh, that stood out for me other than she just was. 
And I have met uh, people in my life that on the first meeting, when you shake their hand or meet their eye, something happens. There's a glow coming or emanating from that other person. And when that connection is made, that's when miracles can happen. And that's what I tuned into is that I felt that the character of Alfie was um, special in that way because she's non-judgmental. And uh, for those who have uh, seen the movie already and those that are going to buy the movie, although this is um, Lee Strobel's kind of exploration and discovery of God and Christ through his journalistic expedition, what else is happening is this movie is telling the story of a marriage. And uh, I think that the character of Alfie did everything she could do to encourage Leslie Strobel's character to honor your marriage. That, you know, in a way she was actually saying, God's going to be here. He's waiting. When you're ready, he's ready. But don't forget to honor your marriage. And I thought that was a, a very important point of view. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that that pretty much uh, covers it in that, you know, the other thing, one other thing is they said that she smiled a lot. And that was, uh, <laughs> that was easy for me because I have nice teeth. So, uh, <laughs> so a person that smiles a lot has something to say with that smile. And again, part of it is just that inner glow that's, you know, coming out and manifesting in that smile that's saying, I am, period. That's all. I am. I want you to comment on why you think that this this message of this film has been received so well. Um, well, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, plug into where I am right now in this moment. And I'll just say one word, Charlottesville. Bob, we are living in a world where every day our hearts are being filled and broken at the same time. And I believe that a film like this that affirms the existence of God is always going to be timely and needed, especially when we're living in a world filled with so much hatred. And it really just goes back to, you know, one of the most important Christian tenets that there is, love thy neighbor as thyself. L. Scott Caldwell here on The Intersection. The film's website is thecaseforchristmovie.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection, it's Melissa Henson, Program Director for the Parents Television Council. In our conversation, she discussed matters relative to content offered by streaming and what are called over-the-top services, including the lack of parental safeguards and the lack of original family-friendly programming. From that conversation, this is Melissa Henson. Well, I think um, the device that makes the most sense for your family really has a lot to do with how you're going to be um, 
interacting and engaging with the media. So, for example, if you are the parent of mostly young children, you're not going to be letting them watch TV unsupervised. You're going to be there anytime they, they're going to be watching TV. Something like a Google Chromecast might make the most sense for your family because the only content the child is ever going to see is the content that you choose to project onto the screen. You know, you sort of think of it like a, an old-fashioned um, movie projector or like an old-fashioned um, slide projector. Um, the content is actually on your phone, and um, you connect your phone to the Chromecast device to stream the content to your television set. So whoever's holding the phone, the smartphone or the tablet or, or the iPad or the, the connected device is going to be the one who has absolute control over the content that's going to be seen on screen. So as I say, if you're a parent of a young child who's going to be watching TV supervised at all times, that might make the most sense. Um, if you're the parent of an older child uh, who's going to be allowed to watch TV unsupervised at times, uh, you might prefer something like an Apple TV device, which requires you to enter a PIN code even to launch certain apps. So for example, you can't even launch the Hulu app on Apple TV without first entering a PIN code. Um, there are some apps that will open without that, but, but, but several apps do require a PIN to launch. Um, that's not true for Roku, and that's not true as far as we could tell for the app or for the Fire TV, Amazon Fire TV. Uh, another advantage that we found with the Apple TV is that it is the only device that also adds parental controls to streaming music and podcasts. So if you're going to be using it for, for listening to music or podcasts, that's a great added layer of protection. Um, the device that we found had the least additional help for parents uh, was the Roku, which also happens to be the most popular right now in the marketplace because it's the least expensive. Um, but but um, even though it's inexpensive, it does not have any additional layers of parental control. In this overall report, and the title of it is Over the Top or a Race to the Bottom, A Parent's Guide to Streaming Video, you actually list some recommendation recommendations for these streaming video on-demand providers with respect to making their services or platforms more family-friendly. What are some of those recommendations? Well, for example, um, if parental controls are in place, a child should not be able to freely browse through adult titles, and certainly any kind of um, explicit or adult imagery should be removed from the mass screens if a child, if, if the parental controls are turned on and if, if, you're, if a child is using it. The child should not be able to freely flip between a child's profile and, and an adult profile, which, um, which they are able to do, certainly with uh, Netflix and Hulu. Um, and Amazon Prime don't even have the option of a separate login for, for young users. Um, we also suggested that, um, you know, with some of the satellite services, for example, you can pay a reduced fee uh, so that you don't have to subsidize some of the more explicit content out there. And a, a similar option should be available for families on these streaming services. They shouldn't be forced to subsidize um, some of the graphic mature rated content um, just so that they access family programming. Did you find any uniformity with respect to ratings, or do these ratings really even provide an accurate picture about the content that could be available? Yeah, no, actually, it was, it was um, you know, it was a, a mishmash. You know, there was no consistency at all across devices or across streaming services, and the ratings are applied. So, for example, on Netflix, 
Um, Netflix does seem to be a little bit more concerned, I would say, in how they apply the ratings. So, um, you know, a, a show might get a, an MA rating on Netflix, but perhaps on cable or broadcast TV might have only gotten a TV 14 rating. So they, they do seem to err on the side of being more conservative, but at the same time, uh, they, they, they apply one rating for the entire series. Um, so the, the that MA rating could because hmm. could be because of one F word in one episode of a particular show and not in any other episode. But there's no granularity or or no justification for the ratings given. So you really have no way of knowing without actually watching why it was rated the way it was. But but they apply one rating across all all episodes of of a show. And they don't provide any kind of content descriptors at all. Melissa Henson from the Parents Television Council. Learn more at parentstv.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. On that homepage, you will find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content, including video highlights from the recent CBA Unite event in Cincinnati. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of The Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.